The goal, explain the 1990s in exactly 60 songs. The result, we did it. I'm Rob Arvilla. I host 60 songs that explain the 90s, which has indeed covered 60 fantastic songs thus far from Tupac to Radiohead to TLC. So let's do 30 more. Let's do 90 songs. No, we're not changing the name. More rad songs, more special guests, more astute critical analysis, more loopy nostalgic exuberance. That's 60 songs that explain the 90s every Wednesday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what makes a good movie even better? Delicious food. And I know exactly where to find that. Now, for a limited time, you can get the new $1.99 Sonic Crispy Tender Wraps. A crispy chicken tender with bold flavors like hickory barbecue and cheesy baja, crisp lettuce, and melty cheese. It's just what you need for a perfect movie night. Get yourself some TLC, tender love and chicken, for only $1.99 at Sonic. Buy a $1.99 Sonic Crispy Chicken Tender Wrap today. Tax not included, limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected. An inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue. A surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland. Watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being. Present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Ethan Hawke. One of this past weekend's big releases was the horror thriller The Black Phone, and it stars as the masked grabber who kidnaps children, paradoxically, one of our most beloved actors for his entire life on The Big Picture. His name is Ethan Hawke. He's had an expansive, always interesting career as an actor, writer, director, documentarian, many other things. Perhaps his biggest fan, to my knowledge, is Chris Ryan, and he's here on the pod to talk about Hawke. How you doing, CR? What's up, man? Movies are back. They yeah. came back with a vengeance this weekend. Quite a weekend. We had a solid performance from Elvis atop the box office. Top Gun Maverick continues to win. There's a Jurassic Park movie that I'm sure you fully understand in theaters right now. And For coming sure. in in fourth place with a solid $23 million is The Black Phone, the movie we're talking about today. Four movies grossing over $20 million in the domestic box office. Shout out to all the shareholders. Shout out to the, uh, to the theater chains, to the concessions. We did it, guys. Movies are sort of back. They're in this constant state of reimagining whether or not they can come back or not. But The Black Phone does feel like a movie that was being released in the high times of 2019. Blumhouse thriller and interesting movie. Um, a snapshot of the movie really quickly, directed by Scott Derrickson, who previously collaborated with Ethan Hawke on Sinister 10 years ago. Uh, it's about a th- It features a 13-year-old kid named Finney Shaw who's abducted and is held in a soundproof basement by a sadistic mass killer called The Grabber. When a disconnected phone on the wall starts to ring, he discovers that he can hear the voices of the murderer's previous victims. They're dead set on making sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to Finney. This is based on a story by Joe Hill, who is Stephen King's son and written by Scott Derrickson and Robert Cargill. What did you think of the black phone? So I think I liked it more in concept than execution. And that concept is essentially what if we did it, but as dazed and confused. And I think (laughs) that's a really good idea. They start out with some little league. The kid looks a lot like Wiley from dazed and confused. Like there is that feeling to it. Good soundtrack. Kind of of basic. 
There are needle drops that almost directly reflect the needle drops in Days of Confused. For sure. There, there's some, uh, I would say, t- um, chronological flexibility about like, it seems like they're like hair metal kids in, 19, in the 1970s for the sake of this movie. But be- beyond that, I really like that concept. And then I think the very things that the movie has going for it kind of go against it at times, which is essentially that it doesn't dwell too much on the backstory of the grabber or maybe like his motivation. <laughs> it's not that I really need a lot of character motivation from this. Uh, and it becomes just a little vague as to what's possible in this world, what isn't, what's going on. It, it's actually quite inventive because I think it was probably a lot of it was a, a function of the budget and a function of like the scale of the movie that they were making. But it largely takes place in a room, you know, after they get, after they get uh, Finney, it's like more or less like, Kind of a one-room deal. Uh, but I thought it was cool. I guess I, you know, it would be like a two and a half out of three, f- four-star kind of thing. Yeah, we're on the same page. I think part of it was the marketing for the film had me thinking that this was actually going to be a significantly darker movie, which is kind of a strange thing to say about a movie about um, a killer who abducts children, which is a pretty grim premise. But the movie is surprisingly magically real. In mm-hmm. a way, you know, and and the fact that Joe Hill is is Stephen King's son, there is a, certainly a Stephen King sort of the last forty pages of a Stephen King novel quality to this story. Um, it reminds me of some of the things you read in the Stand about like how evil and how good are kind of constantly at war with one another, and yeah. you know that there is this kind of spiritual aspect to a lot of the evil in the world. And this, his sister is able to like communicate or see things in her dreams, which is much like her late mother and. That whole thing feels very like like very Stephen King. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, obviously that makes sense uh, given who Joe Hill is. As far as Derrickson, it's it's kind of an unusual movie. You can tell that he uh, was attracted to this because it recalls his childhood and when he was growing up in this era and this time, and um, you know the idea of the Finney kid being like a little bit of an outcast, being picked on a little bit, and kind of transforming that story in a, a story about like basically like forming bonds and forming unions with these children that he speaks to who have been killed. But it's a, it's kind it's a, the word you used to me when you texted me over the weekend, when you saw it was odd. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do think it is an odd movie because it's kind of neither fish nor foul. It's neither like a true thriller because you, we basically know that the main character is going to be abducted because we've all seen the trailer, but also it's not like a pure horror movie because it doesn't feature like, Lots of grisly like kills. Two, two jump scares, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, honestly, what recommends it, and this is odd to say because we almost never see his face in this movie, is Ethan Hawke behind a mask embodies a really odd horror movie villain. You mm-hmm. know, a really odd kind of killer. There's like a, a vulnerability and a weirdness to his performance that is pretty unusual and... I really, I liked him in this a lot. It's a little bit, it's another movie where I feel like many of the actors aren't necessarily always on the same page about what kind of movie they're in. I but it feels agree like with you. Ethan Hawke very much is like, I know what I'm doing here. I've yeah. made a choice about what this character is and I'm following it all the way through. So I did and like crucially, that crucially, all of, of his scenes are with Finney pretty much. They're with this kid. Whereas like some of the other actors are doing stuff with detectives and other kids and like they're just like out there and like, Watching James Ransone and 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 Jeremy Davies try to calibrate their thing to this movie is is I think where some of the tonal shifts happen. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned like uh, the thriller aspect of this. 
we really are living at a time where like David Fincher has all these guys in his pocket because <laughs> this this movie essentially opens with a credit sequence that's right out of Seven. Uh, and I kind of, um, I would be interested in seeing that version of this movie. Mm. You know, the uh, like e- even one that's about the cops trying to figure out who did this because uh, I think that his influence like looms over this as much as say, uh, the the it adaptation that happened a couple of years ago. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so you're a veteran of the Stranger Things wars. Where are you at on on kid acting these days? Do you feel like you've got your tuning fork? I think that finally um, set. Little Princess Leia has ruined kid acting for me for a few years now. It's going to be a minute. I need Christian Bale to be reincarnated. You know, <laughs> it's what's what's the last great kid performance? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I I did think a couple of the kids in it were pretty good. Yeah, um, including um, Finn Wolfhard of Stranger yeah. Things fame. So that that was a pretty solid cast. That's a really good question. There was one recently. What am I thinking of? Didn't a kid get nominated recently? Yeah, I feel like Sophia Lillis in it is probably the best we've had in the last couple of years. There haven't been too many, although it's an interesting way to pivot into Ethan Hawke here. Because mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke, of course, was a preteen when he first hit the movie scene, child actor in Explorers, the Joe Dante film. And so, you know, we're going to talk about Hawke's whole career. And it is a, a wide, deep, bold, unusual kind of career for a... Would you call him a movie star? Uh, y- yes, but I think he's maybe more of a really famous actor than he is a movie star. And what's the distinction there? And does that define him in a way that it maybe doesn't define any other actor that we have at the moment? <sighs> Meaning like he can't open a movie, but you never are disappointed to see him in a movie? And when he does open a movie, I don't know if he gets credit for it. Mm. Like if he, if this movie made 20 million bucks, like it did exactly what Blumhouse hoped it would do. It did probably exactly what Ethan Hawke hoped it would do when he probably didn't take that much money for the role, but got points on what it did at the box office. And it's basically been, you know, the, the other big horror movie from this year, Scream, was a sequel. This is one of the first original horror movies we've gotten in theaters in a while. I, I don't know necessarily, though, Ethan Hawke wears a mask the entire movie, save like a like brief moment, that people are going to walk out and be like, Ethan Hawke throws his hat in the Tom Cruise and Velociraptor ring in the box office fight. You know what I mean? Well, we're doing that, but sure. Yeah, yeah. But like, I don't think he's going to get like the the dap for that. I think what he gets is, and we'll talk about this a lot when we, we talk about his career, is he is this relentlessly searching, try anything kind of actor who isn't afraid to do stuff that people actually want to go see, but also will do stuff nobody wants to go see. And he mm. looks at those two things as completely equally important and valuable. Do you feel like you approach your podcasting career that way? That there there are some that are just for you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, are you referring to certain episodes of The Rewatchables? <laughs> or when Andy and I talk about a French language spy show for six more, weeks of the summer? That might be more like what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Let's go back to Hawk. So Ethan Hawk's only 51. For, he's a lot closer to us in age than I think I realized. You Do you view him as a contemporary? I'll say this. I think that this is probably like the actor that I most identify with. I don't mean like it, he's like I'm cool like him or anything like that, but it is 
the closest thing that a guy who could be in the Magnificent Seven, I, I can also imagine like hanging out with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, he's like cool older brother in a lot of ways. I didn't have an older brother, but if I did, I think I would have wanted it to be Ethan Hawke. You know, yeah. really curious guy, seemingly always going on adventures. Is yours Pratt? Chris Pratt is, is the guy you would most want. No, to, I like, just said Ethan Hawke, bro. <laughs> I just said Ethan Hawke. All right. You're the Pratt guy. We know this. Pratt comes from Tur- TV. Terminalist. Ethan Hawke comes from movies. So <laughs> just keep that in mind. Uh, Hawke is so unusual. You know, he's uh, he's born in Austin, Texas, and he did spend some time in his youth in, in Texas, but for the most part, grew up on the East Coast with his mom after his parents split. And he's having just a a fascinatingly wide career. Like I said, you know, he's been Academy Award nominated and he's written novels and he's directed documentaries. He's got a documentary coming out later this year, actually in, a, in about a month's time called The Last Movie Stars, speaking of the movie star conversation, about Joanne Woodard and Paul Newman and their union and their partnership and kind of what they did together mm-hmm. as a famous couple and the good they put into the world and the art that they made. And that's such an interesting, self-reflexive kind of work him thinking about like his place in the world. He seems to be someone who is always not just questing to do something new, but like constantly in self-analysis of the work that he's doing, which I find very charming. I find to be unusual for an actor or a movie star because most of those folks either seem like completely intellectually checked out or too far in the other direction. Or completely full of shit. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like it's just like if you just put the cue cards in front of them, they'll just be like, I will sell this thing no matter how what it what it is when i talked to him for good lord bird it was almost like it almost threw me off how intellectually and emotionally engaged he was with his career at the same time and you you know you and i probably when we used to talk to musicians and when we talk to people who make tv and movies now we ask questions about like how people plot their careers or how they view their own body of work and we're often disappointed by the answer like the people will often be like well i don't know it's just like whatever my agent brings me or it's like he loves that question we just got into the studio and let things happen and it's not we're not really prescriptive about it. he was like no i see how this is all laid out i know what marvel is doing i know what this is happening i can't make good lord bird here unless i do that here and he's like a very playful and i think uh you know, like there was a moment in the reality bites uh rewatchables where Bill was like kind of like I wouldn't be friends with Troy, his character mm-hmm. from Reality Bites in college. It would he would have really bothered me. And I think that Ethan Hawke has some of that quality of the like I'm the guy who brings a book to a party kind of yeah. thing. But you kind of need those guys in the world. You need really sincere people who believe in creative arts with all of their heart or otherwise like what's it all for right i completely agree i think the thing that also recommends that approach for him is the fact that he's not too pretentious or up his own ass to make the black phone or to make the purge or to make even moon Knight, which i did not think was necessarily all that successful but he will still do mainstream fare because he knows how difficult it is to have a career and how difficult it is to get things off the ground that are not necessarily commercial. So he's kind of constantly willing to make that bet. You and I have both interviewed him probably a couple of times at this point. Um, he's just such a dynamic thinker and also, mm-hmm. like you say, kind of willing to take the bait from someone like you and I that he's willing to go off, but also is like a basketball fan and a right and a dad and like sort of like a regular person in, that, in that respect. Yeah. Just like, yeah. And so because of that, like I think he's a much more approachable figure and doesn't have this not just the high-mindedness doesn't bother me as much, but the he doesn't seem terribly famous. 
you know he's very he's very handsome and um but he doesn't even in films there's a regular quality to him if you look at him in movies like the before movies or boyhood he seems like a man in the world and you oh, can't yeah. say that about a lot of movie stars um one thing I, I i was rereading the the john lar profile of him from the new yorker from a few years back around the time of the good lord bird which is such a fascinating piece about his life and especially like the way that he was raised and kind of how he was challenged as a kid, which I think led to a lot of the work that he ended up doing. And I just thought this passage was really interesting. Um, so he went to Carnegie Mellon School of Drama and he said, I wanted to get into college for my mom. And when I got there, I realized I couldn't live for her. I was super anxious to start living my life. So Lara writes, in his second week, he hitchhiked to New York to see the Grateful Dead. In his fifth week, a teacher pulled him out of class and asked, are you high? And then Hawk admitted that he was. And then that teacher asked, then why are you here? And that was the last theater class he ever took. He'd heard that there were auditions in New York for a Peter Weir film called Dead Poet Society. He decided that if he didn't get a part, he'd become a merchant marine. The sun was not yet up when he got to the Pittsburgh bus station. He said, the only thing I remember is my mom on the phone crying. She said, then I don't know if, I'm, if I've ever done this since. I got on my knees and I prayed that I was making the right decision. And then shortly in that piece... Uh, Richard Linklater describes him as a real-life Neil Cassidy type. Like a I character was just going to say, it sounds novel. like a Kerouac character. Like yes. the Merchant Marines or, you know, becoming an actor in New York thing is not, you don't hear that very much any, anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, you really have to have a certain kind of um, a self-belief and a self-possession, I think, to get yourself to that place where you're giving an interview and you're like, I either was going to the Merchant Marines or I was going to be a huge movie star. He also, I, I mean, not to doubt his his dedication to the Merchant Marines as a as a vocation, but he probably was like, I'll go into the Merchant Marines and then I will write a novel about what I didn't in the Merchant mm -hmm. Marines, like Joseph Conrad. Like, I think he saw or loved like people like Towns Van Zandt and Jack Kerouac and the the creative arts as something that happens in conjunction with a life of adventure. And yes. so in some ways, you know, he has become this huge industry unto himself as an actor who can essentially get smaller movies made if you get him in your film. But I think he sees like doing uh, First Reformed or doing, you know, lots of movies with first time directors, mm -hmm. you know, lots of, of, of people's first movies are with him. I think he sees that as like the great adventure. That's his Merchant Marines is like calling into all these different ships of port, but it's all these different movie and, and theatrical experiences. It's interesting you put it that way because he also is incredibly loyal to filmmakers he's worked oh, yeah. with before. You know, he's worked with Linklater many times. He's worked with Antoine Fuqua many times. He's worked with Michael Amerita many times. Like he actually builds also these long lasting partnerships. The same is true for his work in the theater, which we probably won't talk about very much here, but He's also really one of the signature staples of New York theater acting over the last 20 years. He has his own theater company that he uh, started with a friend, and he's appeared on Broadway many times. He's been nominated for Tonys and for Drama Desk Awards. And so he's got like a big, big life as mm -hmm. an American actor, you know? And so that I think that that's the thing that distinguishes him from kind of his movie star contemporaries. Do you remember the first time you saw him on screen? So I think that there's definitely a possibility that it was before I even understood who Ethan Hawke was and it was The Explorers because that was a big VHS tape in my early childhood that I do remember seeing that pretty early. Um, I'm not sure if I saw Dead Poets. Like, as it came out, that might have been a little intense for me at the time. But mm -hmm. I, I'm if it wasn't when it came out, it was fairly soon after that because my dad was 
like covering the Oscars and like the Oscar movies were like talked about in our house when I was a pretty young kid. So it would definitely be one of those two, I would imagine. If you could summarize what you love about him as a screen presence in a couple of sentences, what, what, what is it? What does he do that is different? I think vulnerability. I think, I mean, I think that there's lots of actors who will save their kind of like, um, and like Costner will, will kind of do like once a movie, he'll be like, he'll kind of show like this character doubting himself or he'll show like this character's heartbreaking or the, show this character not no longer believing in his own convictions or whatever. But like Hawk kind of does that the entire time. You know, mm-hmm. you're never watching an Ethan Hawk character who's entirely sure of himself. And that to me is incredibly human. Like that's a behavior. And even, I don't even know if it's written that way. He often plays guys who are, um, I will, you know, in the first half of his career, he plays people who are being thrown into situations that they have no experience in. And in the second half of his career, I find that he's often like, you know, the dad in boyhood who's like trying his best, but has failed in a lot of ways, you know, like, and I've always really liked that about him. I mean, that's not movie star behavior. Usually, usually you have somebody who's like, I'll do it if it's like kind of the money shot, but I'm not going to just have this guy be this frail fuck up the entire movie. Yeah, he's usually he's a raw nerve a lot of the time, which is unusual. Um, have you read but any? Never of turn, but it's never like edgy. You know what I mean? It's never like, oh, this puts me off, or this is like um, neurotic necessarily. Mm. You know, it's like more, more. He's like an open wound. You know? Yeah. Well, I may dispute that in a couple of these performances okay. we'll talk about. But I, I was wondering if you've read any of his novels. I haven't. I have are not. you are you afraid to be disappointed by them? No, I just. I think it when he, when Hottest State came out, that was at the sort of peak of like, who does this guy think he is? <laughs> and I, I probably went along with that line of thinking a little bit. And uh, I really admire the fact that he's just like, I look like I, this isn't a vanity thing for me. This is like, I want to be a serious writer. I want to be a serious actor. Like, I think that he understands like how he's perceived, but I do think that like there are certain things that he'll do just to like, despite whatever ridicule he might face. He has kind of um, rehabilitated that part of his reputation, too, because the book that came out after Hot, The Hottest State, Ash Wednesday, was pretty well-reviewed. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he review, re- released a book a couple of years ago as well, which seems to have been reasonably well-reviewed, too. So even that part of him... Have you read... Did you read Hottest State? I, I definitely picked it up in a bookstore when it came out, and I don't know if I got past the first 20 pages in the bookstore, right. but that's not really anything against The Hottest State. I've probably done that with... 500 books in my life that's a that's a that's one of my bad habits is going into bookstores thinking i'm gonna really like something starting to read it and then realizing i don't have time for it um so (laughs) i haven't read any of them um i don't think that i will i i have seen uh the adaptation of the hottest state which i would say is not the greatest film his filmography but why don't why don't we talk about his filmography he's made Mm -hmm. a lot of movies he's made i think he's made 85 films in 40 less than 40 years so he works often he is someone who has definitely made some movies that I have not seen. Not nearly as many as Nicolas Cage. Um, but unlike, say, Tom Cruise, who was the last Hall of Fame we built, I had seen every single Tom Cruise movie multiple times, probably. This is an unusual career because, as you said, Explorers is his first film. Joe Dante, kind of, you know, preteen boy space adventure um, mm-hmm. that is very charming, very winning. I rewatched it last night. Feels like a real relic of 1985, but in a good way. Do you think that this movie belongs in the Ethan Hawke Hall of Fame? 
No, I think that we need to pick. Uh, although I will say that's a great kid actor movie at a time when I feel like they really figured out how to work with kid actors really well. Well, it's it's a pretty fascinating one because River Phoenix is his co-star. Yeah. Yeah. And River Phoenix is wonderful in that movie and in a role that you wouldn't think River Phoenix would play. He's the dork. He's the dork. Yeah. And he's really good as Wolfgang Huller. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting because Hawk, I think, struggled to get parts after this movie was released, which was not a hit. And River Phoenix's next movie was Stand By Me. Yes. And, and Hawk has talked about the jealousy that he felt as he watched River Phoenix become this star leading up to eventually getting the part in Dead Poet Society, which is the next movie on the list. So that's, he plays Todd Anderson. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is Oh Captain, My Captain. And this is obviously, and this, is go, this is going in. Yeah. This um, is, uh, you know, one of the great coming of age movies. Um, one of the most like beautifully observed dramas of that time period. And is, and is in a lot of ways like a pretty perfect movie. Uh, the next movie after that is a movie called Dad. I have not seen this film. I've not seen Dad. So I assume it's not going in. No. White Fang, though? I mean, White Fang, when I was nine years old, which is how old I was when this was, was released, was a big deal. Mm-hmm. This, was a, this was an event movie for children. Yeah. Um, I definitely saw it when it was released and have not seen it since. I believe it was a hit. Still, is this? No, it's this, not. In. No, it's not going in. Okay. What about uh, a film that was released that same year, Mystery Date? So, uh... I do remember this mm-hmm. because this was very much like him being like, I graduated. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in romantic movies now. Uh, I haven't seen it since like around when it came out. It was a very big um trailer that was at the beginning of a lot of videos that I would rent. So I don't know if I, is Heather Graham in this? It's Terry Polo. Terry Polo. Um so, so strange. The timing of, of the universe is always interesting to me. On Friday, I watched a documentary called This Is Guar. About, about the Guar? band Guar. You will watch anything. I'm just trying to get a full <laughs> sense of the landscape of cinema. That's really something that is important to me. Do so you I watched, like Guar? Sure. Yeah. Do you? Like, do you like put Guar on while you're driving around? Uh, well, you know, I loved Empire Records as a as a teenager and there's mm-hmm. a very famous Guar cameo and oh, yeah. so I had a little Guar phase when I was 13 um, really? I wouldn't say I was like really into like getting dressed up like uh, Odorous you Arungus your, you know that was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow I'm watching this Guar documentary and I, I'm like waiting for the sequence where they talk about how they were in Empire Records and how that like helped evolve them and mm-hmm. they start by saying we were actually in a movie called Mystery Date which I had never seen. And there's a scene where they're, the, they, they go, Ethan Hawke and Terry Polo go on a date together and they go to this bar and there's a bar band playing, but the bar band is Guar in full Guar regalia, you know, dressed up as monsters. And um, it's kind of amazing that for a hot minute there, Guar actually was in like three or four movies. Uh, that alone, though, I don't think warrants a inclusion in the Ethan Hawke Hall of Fame. So no. Mystery Date is out. Uh, I do like Terry Polo, though, if I'm being honest. Always, always had a thing for her. She was great. 1992. Waterland. I haven't seen this film. I don't remember it. Was this a like a prestigious drama? Um, it's a it's a it's more of a mystery movie. It's actually directed okay. by um Jake Gyllenhaal and Maggie Gyllenhaal's father, Stephen oh. Gyllenhaal. Uh, shot actually by Robert Elswit, who would go on to work with yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson many times. Um, pretty interesting cast: Jeremy Irons, uh, Sinead Cusack, John Hurd, 
and Ethan Hawke. Um, I may have seen this and don't remember, actually. I, I don't remember it. There was a lot of water movies back then, too. <laughs> I don't think it's quite like Waterworld. I don't think this is the prequel to Waterworld. But there was also that... What was the Eric Stoltz, Wesley Snipes uh, wheelchair movie? Was that Water Dance? Water Dancers? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, you know, we were, just, we were just firing them out as a country back then. Yeah. And then, so the sequel to Water Dance, Deep Water, was released this year. That's right. Uh, directed by Adrian Lyne. So it's, things have been going really well. Okay, another movie in Water, one of the great franchises we've ever created. Actually, I think the conclusion of the Water Saga is coming at the end of this year. Uh, Avatar, Avatar, the way of, wa- way of Water. Yeah, which is exciting. Big Jim closing the loop for us. Do you think if you did a, a Big Pig Pod, best, best water movies? I mean, there's a one million percent chance we're going to do that at some point. <laughs> water <Right>? draft. <laughs> Why not? We're fucking done when that do happens. Do people want it? Do, do, do people want the Water Movies podcast? I'll do yeah. it. We're doing yeah. a train podcast River later Wilds? this year. Come on, yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. We it might even be Water Week, Water Month. How water else will week. we celebrate Avatar? Yeah. All right, nineteen ninety two, Midnight Clear. Love did you read this, this book in high school? I did, and this movie is one of those like they got who in this movie? Mm-hmm. It's like it's because it's Ethan Hawke, Gary Sinise, Pete Berg. Gosh, there's some other like pretty big people in this. Kevin Dillon. That's right. Frank Whaley. That's right. John C. McGinley. And uh, it's an adaptation of William Morton's novel about uh, his experiences in the Ardennes uh, at Christmas, I believe right before the end of the European theater war, you know, the war in the European theater in World War II. And it is uh, pretty moving. It's a pretty amazing movie. And uh, it's really underseen. Um, there is one or two moments in it that I don't think have aged great, but... Uh, are true to the book, I guess, and, and you know, true to William Morton's experiences. But it, he, he Ethan Hawke is really, really good at it, and he is. This is a really big, um, great lead performance by him. Everybody else around him has kind of got their ticks and bits and uh, like heightened personalities, and he has to be in like almost every shot and be like the kind of s- steady center of this film. This is one of the first movies that was directed by Keith Gordon. Yeah. Who was one of the stars of Dressed to Kill, a number of other movies in the 80s, and went on to be a filmmaker. And Legend um, of Billie Jean. That's right. Never seen it. Uh, pretty good movie. I like him in I Clear. I, d- I also read this book in school. I wouldn't put it in the Hall of Fame, but I would just recommend it. I wouldn't either. Um, okay, we're, we're starting to get to the true Hawk time. I so, would like to, to create... I don't know if it goes in the Hall, but I'm going to ask for there to be like a little... A little like uh, foyer where we mm-hmm. put a live. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask you about this because I haven't seen a live in a long time. A live is, uh, you know, the sort of cannibal survivalist story directed by mm-hmm. Frank Marshall from 1993. This was a very noisy movie when it was released. This, For sure. This felt like an event film at the time. I don't even totally know why that was. What time of year was this movie released? Do you remember? I don't know, but I think it was also, uh, it was just like, they do what in this movie? <laughs> yes. Um, right, so this movie was released January 15th, 1993. So it's kind of unusual that there was so much noise around it, given that it was a sort of a dumpuary release. But um, Did Frank Marshall direct this? He did direct it. Yeah. yeah. Also, John Patrick Shanley wrote the screenplay yeah. for this movie. So that's probably part of the reason why. Produced by Kathleen Kennedy, who is, of course, very important these days in, in Hollywood. Um, you know, it's it's about the survivors of a 1972 plane crash uh, in the Andes and the men who fight to stay alive and the mm-hmm. things that they do. 
Ethan Hawke, Ethan Hawke's best friend, Josh Hamilton, also one of the co-stars. Yeah. Vincent Spano. Uh, I remember liking this movie, but definitely have not seen it in 25 years. I, I've watched this movie a bunch. I don't like, I don't ever like dial it up now. And it's interestingly not a big cable one. I don't know. Well, I mean, maybe it's just because nobody thinks anybody wants to watch people eating one another and uh, during the middle of the day on like Cinemax, but it is incredibly well made. Um, and he plays this really stoic guy who kind of becomes the leader of the entire group of people and is like, what we have to do is eat so that we can climb over the Andes to, to, to save ourselves. I believe this movie is currently streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Oh, dope. Right next and... to the mayor of Kingstown. <laughs> a Midnight Clear, by the way, is free. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on Tubi. It's all over the place if you want to check that one out. Alive, I'm just going to give a yellow. Okay. okay. This yeah. is our first yellow light. Everything has been green or red up until this point, except for Dead Poets Society, which is officially in. Rich in Love is also in 1993. That movie is definitely not in the Hall of Fame. 1994, we get to Reality Bites and Troy, who you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, great film. Let great, me ask you, film. just for the sake of conversation, can we only have Troy or Jesse in the Hall of Fame? No, they're two sides of the same coin. Okay. I'm just asking. I'm just, I'm just, I want to talk it out. Well, I just feel like Troy is, uh, Jesse is Troy minus the cynicism. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the, the same beauty, the same artistic soul, the same kind of wandering, the same cultural brain. But not as like damaged by his dad and, and sort of self-destructive. Yes. Okay. So Jesse and Troy both go in. And Reality Bites was written by a woman and Before Sunrise was written by a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. And then written again, sort of like rewritten by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy yeah. along with Linklater. And that isn't, is, is, is notable to me. Um, you're at this stage of your life. Are you more of a Troy or more like Ben Stiller's character? Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> or more of like uh, a Steve Zahn? Maybe? I'm more or like Ginny Garofalo. Yeah. I'm just folding clothes at the gap. Like Ginny, you know, is that how you think of your podcasting these days? Yeah. You know, make sure it's got a perfect crease. Get it out there to people. You know I did that, right? Yeah. Can you still do the shirt really well? Uh, not too bad. Muscle memory? I definitely yeah. put my wife to shame when it comes to clothes folding, which unfortunately for me means I fold a lot of the laundry in this house. Um, okay, Reality Bites is going in. Floundering was also released in 1994, but that movie is not going in. You remember that one? I do not. See, it's so funny. He's got a bunch of movies like this where I'm like, where, what, what was that? When did you do that? Which is yeah, even going through like basically throughout his entire career, I'll be like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know he put out three movies that year, and I only saw one. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what makes a good movie even better? Delicious food, and I know exactly where to find that. Now, for a limited time, you can get the new dollar ninety nine Sonic Crispy Tender Wraps, a crispy chicken tender with bold flavors like hickory barbecue and cheesy baja, crisp lettuce, and melty cheese. It's just what you need for a perfect movie night. Get yourself some TLC, tender love and chicken for only $1.99 at Sonic. Buy a $1.99 Sonic Crispy Chicken Tender Wrap today. Tax not included, limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now's also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. 
get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash big pick. That's mintmobile.com slash big pick. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Okay, so Reality Bites is going in in 1985 before Sunrise has to go in. Um, let's wait to have our before movies conversation. Okay. 1995 also features a film called Search and Destroy. Have you seen this movie? I haven't. Um, once again, incredible cast in this movie. Ethan Hawke only plays a supporting part. Uh, it's directed by David Sal based on a play by Howard Corder. The screenplay was written by Michael Almerida, which is notable because he would be somebody that Hawk would go on to collaborate with in the future. Griffin Dunn, Rosanna Arquette, Ileana Douglas, Dennis Hopper, John Turturro, Christopher Walken. Pretty amazing cast. Score by Elmer Bernstein. Jeez. I don't know. This is like, this movie made, this movie made $389,000 at the box office. How does that happen? Anyway, Search and Destroy is not in. Uh, okay, 1997. Two years go by, no Hawk movies, uh-huh. and then we get then we get Gattaca. Okay, so there is a huge Gattaca hive out there. Mm-hmm. There is make Gattaca rewatchable. There is mm-hmm. Gattaca is a hugely influential and important sci-fi movie. I thought Gattaca was pretty good. I think when it came out, I found it a little cold, mm-hmm. as I do many of Andrew Nichols' movies, but. I recognize its importance, and if you want to say yellow or it's in, even I'll entertain the conversation. Okay, my instinct, and this is not a question of quality but impact, is that it has to go in. Now I revisited Gattaca last night. I have also uh, observed the Gattaca hive. Mm-hmm. I have seen the people calling for it for the rewatchables. I am very mixed on the work of Andrew Nichol. I don't think it's a movie with a great premise and a great ending and a very soft middle Mm. that kind of drags. I just rewatched it last night. This is the film where um, Hawk met his future wife, Uma Thurman, from whom he is now divorced. And the thing that I, the reason I think it should go in 
is because it's a very, 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 very good Ethan Hawke performance. Yeah, right. In a, in a movie that is a little bit uneven, but especially as the movie gets more frantic and more desperate and his character is being coming closer and closer to being found out, you see that like this is basically just a you know Humphrey Bogart movie or a Richard Widmark movie just with a lot of beautiful kind of science fiction design. And you can it, it's there's a dead giveaway in the Alan Arkin character kind of dressed like a classic gumshoe detective. Mm-hmm. And he becomes that like really tense, frantic figure that you see in a lot of 40s and 50s films. And at the at the sort of breaking point, the big reveal at the end of the movie, it's some of Hawk's, I think, best acting when he's in his 20s. So because of the fan base and because of the work that Hawk does, I, my gut is to put it in. Um, now, it's going to get a little gnarly after this, though, because I think there's going to be some Hawk movies that you like that I don't care for and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So we'll work to collaborate as best we can. Okay. Gattaca, Gattaca, I'm going to vote for going in right now. 1998 Great Expectations. Do you remember this? I do. Quaron. Uh, very, Quaron. very, very big creative swing that I think really misses. But I admire the, the balls on it. Yeah, it feels like Quaron preparing for better versions of films that he would make. Um, sometimes in Spanish, not necessarily always in Spanish, but Itu Mama Tambien seems to be like like the more... Ref, like stripped down and refined version of what he's going for like a romantic drama is something mm-hmm. he's really good at and so uh i feel like this doesn't work as well so that's not that's not going in even though i mean ethan hawk getting to play finn bell and work work against de niro right all his hopes and dreams right there right that you'd imagine yeah. that as a as a young actor that was a huge huge deal for him doesn't work newton boys one of the one of the real i wouldn't say disappointments but you know, it's funny. This has been on Criterion recently for yes, a little bit of time. So this is a Richard Linklater Western. Um, and it's McConaughey's in this, right? McConaughey, Skeet Ulrich, Vincent D'Onofrio, Dwight Yoakam, and Ethan Hawke. Yeah. And I I kind of just don't understand how this movie's not better. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a, a lot of it is tone. A lot of it is just kind of, it's all a little all over the place. But I was wondering if its appearance on Criterion, man, it was getting some sort of critical reappraisal that I wasn't aware of. No, I think it's a, a Linklater celebration was the reason for it. Okay. And this is one of the more underseen Linklater films, even though it was a it was sort of his big mainstream swing yeah. in the aftermath yeah. of Dazed and um and the before films. And it's a little bloated and it's a little bit ill conceived in terms of its tone. It was a big money loser actually and it, I think it kind of reset Linklater on a different course as a filmmaker. The performances are pretty good. I would say McConaughey and Hawk are pretty good together. Um, it's an it's an odd duck. You know, very strangely, the the um, the Newton boys were from Uvalde, Texas, which of course has been in the oh, news wow. tragically. And so I I actually rewatched this on Criterion uh, a couple of weeks ago too, and I clocked that, and I was like, God, what are the odds of that? It's so strange. But um, not not the not the best movie um, in the collaboration between these two greats. So that's not in the Velocity of Gary in 1999. Can't say not, I saw it. That's yeah. not in. Joe the King, 1999. What is what is this movie? This 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 reminds me a little bit of Search and Destroy, directed by Frank Whaley, starring a bunch of Frank Whaley's friends, Val Kilmer, John Leguizamo, Austin Pendleton, the great theater actor and trainer mm-hmm. who, of course, worked very closely with Hawk over the years. Cameron Manheim, Noah Fleiss, a lot of names I haven't seen since 1998. Uh, it's a drama uh, based largely on Wally's own childhood. And the childhood of his brother. Okay. This film won the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at the 1999 Sundance Film Festival. 
I don't I don't know anybody who's seen it. You don't know me because I or you know me and I haven't seen it. Okay, what about a slightly bigger movie? Snow Falling on Cedars. This is uh, one of the first movies that I remember reading about very like closely and being like, wow, this is going to be a really big deal. Ron Bass adapting this this very like uh, critically acclaimed novel. And it came out and nobody saw it. I think part of the reason why it was a huge deal is because it was Scott Hicks's first film after Shine. Mm-hmm. And it was his big follow-up and didn't totally work. Another movie, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall produced this movie. Ethan Hawke, James Cromwell, Reunited from Explorers. Yeah. Uh, Max von Sydow, uh, Yuki Kudo. Your guy Robert Richardson on, Len- on Lens Duty. Sam Shepard and Richard Jenkins in this movie too. Yeah. Huge film. Flopped. Hawk has a bunch of these. Oh, yeah. yeah. Prestigious seeming movies in the first half of his career that don't totally work. Uh, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I did see it in theaters when it was released because I was reading Entertainment Weekly and was told that it really mattered that year. And um, it turns out it, it didn't matter. Uh, 2000. I just watched for the first time the New York City set at a modern adaptation of Hamlet. Yeah. Also with this? Sam Shepard, right? Also, Sam Shepard. He plays. He plays Ghost Dad. He plays mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke's father. Uh, very touching interplay between the two of them. Um, Ethan Hawke almost feels like he is aging down. Like he's playing a really kind of punkish, mopish, Troy-esque version of Hamlet. Which I guess, mm-hmm. if you in the text, you can see is that is sort of who Hamlet is. You seen this? Uh, I have. Yeah, I went on like a Hamlet run during Station Eleven, where I watched like a bunch of different versions of Hamlet. And uh, let, I think let, I arrived at my favorite version being the Andrew Scott version that you can you can find online in different places that was on stage. Okay. But you're saying Andrew Scott over Olivier. Just want to make sure that's, well, that's I on just, the record. I mean, like my that was my personal favorite. I think Olivier I is like kind of like he's got the 715 homers. Like you, you can't really <laughs> fuck with that. But uh yeah, like it this is good. This is really like if you if I told you that young Ethan Hawke was going to do Hamlet, it's pretty much exactly what you think it would be. It is, yeah. Right down to the snow cap that he's wearing throughout the film. Yeah. Um, I liked it. I, I thought it was really clever. I thought the casting was really, really sharp. I don't think it's going in the Hall of Fame because it's just Hamlet. Um, yeah. But it's a good performance. A lot of the performances in the, in the film are good. I like Bill Murray as Polonius. Uh, I like Leif Schreiber as Laertes. Um uh, Julie Stiles as Ophelia. It's yeah. pretty. It's a pretty interesting movie. It, it. It's also. I think it speaks to, if not how everybody saw Ethan Hawke, at least how Ethan Hawke saw himself. And I think that there are just some people who are like, I gotta play Hamlet. I'm sure lots of p- people are like, I gotta play Hamlet. But there are only a few people who are like, I gotta play Hamlet, and it's gotta get made. It's gotta be done one way or another. I'm gonna play Hamlet. Interesting. Okay. So, so I respect out. that aspect of it, but yeah, it's not in the Hall of Fame. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is this okay. upcoming year mm-hmm. your favorite Ethan Hawke year like it is mine? Let me just peek ahead just a bit. I think it might be the pinnacle of his career. I don't know if it's necessarily his best work. I guess that's up for debate, and we will debate it shortly. I, there is a recent year that I like a lot, sure, and, I, and we'll talk about that. Okay, uh, when we get there. So it's, to, it, to it's give, close. To give our listeners an idea of what we're talking about, it's 2001. He does Waking Life. Kind of extended cameo returning as Jesse in Waking Life. He does Life. Tape. Kind Very of extraordinary movie. Fascinating movie. I've mentioned it a couple times on the show recently because of that same Linklater collection on the Criterion channel. 
Right. And then he does Training Day. He also makes his directorial debut. And he makes his own direct, he directs Chelsea Walls. Chelsea Walls. So this is a big year. Now, Waking Life, I don't think she go in because it's 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 just one sure. segment in this really interesting rotoscoping animation experiment that Linklater would return to in the future, including in a movie this year, Apollo Ten and a Half. Tape is a fascinating, complicated movie that features a lot of challenging conversations amongst three characters trapped in a room. I think it's some of Hawk's best acting. Me too, but I wouldn't put it in the Hall of Fame just because of like the movie itself has not like stepped out of that. No, I agree. Training Day, of course, is going in. It's in. Um, Academy Award nominated for his performance as Jake Hoyt. He talks about this movie all the time. I think it changed his life. I think working with Denzel changed his life in a lot of ways. Really interesting to read about him and what Denzel taught him as an actor, not just in scenes, but basically how to prepare, what to read. And then he he has that great anecdote. I don't know if he shared this with you when you guys spoke about how (laughs) Denzel taught him to never have screenwriters change the script, but always to plan to improvise what you want to say on set so that the producers can't control what the script reads, but they can feel better about hiring you when you improvise something brilliant. They can feel like they can take credit for that, which is one of those great little you know, nuggets of actorly wisdom. And I love the idea of Denzel sharing that with him one day. Who knows if King Kong and Got Shit on Me was in the screenplay for Training Day. But the idea of Denzel coming up with moments like that obviously is so exciting to audiences as it makes producers feel better, too, about the work. I mean, Training Day, that's this is one of your favorite movies of the century. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, this is one of those movies. I actually saw this like twice the weekend it came out because I saw it once and then I was like, I have to go back to make sure I wasn't like hallucinating how good that movie was. And the first 20 times you see it, it's all Denzel. And then you just start to really notice like how good Hawk is as Jake and his reactions to such a domineering Oscar winning performance are very Oscar worthy in and of themselves. So we are not even halfway through the man's career and we've got five greens. Just to recap very quickly, here's what we got. Dead Poets Society, Reality Bites, Before Sunrise, Gattaca, and Training Day. Maybe Gattaca will go by the wayside. We'll see because he takes a lot of risks it's 10. We're, we're just picking 10. Going for 10. We always go for 10 for the Halls of Fame. Two, 2002, he makes a uh, movie called The Jimmy Show. This is not going in. 2004, he makes a thriller called Taking Lives with Angelina Jolie. I did say this. <laughs> this is a bad movie. Very bad movie. Angelina Jolie's made a lot of bad movies, I gotta yeah. say. 2004, Before Sunset. Um, This is one of my favorite movies ever made. So, Can, the, can you go into the hall twice for the same part? I would argue you should go in three times. I would argue that you're right in this case. Has will anyone else ever do that in Hall of Fame, big picture Hall of Fame history? Well, we've never done Al Pacino. Would God Godfather Three make it? Now, Godfather Three, the film, is not very good. You and I talked about it actually last year when it was sort of reimagined and reissued by Francis Ford Coppola. But it was not what I wanted. <laughs> that that is that's high-end late Pacino, okay. in my opinion. So maybe Al could do it. Who else? I mean, uh, Bale for Batman. Would you put three? Ba- like you would put Batman I mean, I Begins no. in? I only think one of those movies is good anyway, so probably not. The but thing somebody, about, somebody else. The would. thing about Jesse is that he changes. The thing that's amazing about Jesse is that Jesse, when he's a college kid traveling across Europe, Jesse, mm-hmm. when he goes to find uh, Julie Delpy in France, is different, mm-hmm. and Jesse, when he's with Julie Delpy in Greece is different. 
and so is and so is Celine. You know, so is, oh yeah, Celine's different the whole time. Yeah, yeah but like I just mean like it, it's just like it's a true. It's not like a trilogy in the traditional sense of like let's take this same guy and just kind of tweak it a little bit. It's like watching people actually go through life. It's one of the great film accomplishments of our film going lifetime. Yeah. We'll have to find a way to pay tribute to these films. Do you think they're going to make a fourth one? I do, but I don't know when. So I believe now this year would mark the longest stretch of time between between films. So it was 95 to 2004 was nine years between stories. And then 2004 to 2013 was nine years. We are now at nine years since before midnight. No film in production. It's been discussed, but we are likely to go past that. And so I wonder at what stage of life Delpy, Linklater, and, and Hawk would address. You know, the that- thing that's nice about this trilogy is that each one of these films ends and you're like, if they never make another one, it's okay. Like the endings yeah. of these movies are so, so perfect. I'm, I'm a half step behind Jesse and Celine, though, in my life. And so I like the idea of that. There's the stories that they tell being a portal into my future. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, before, before, before midnight is act. like, is, is, is a really complicated movie as you go into your forties. You know, it's a really yeah. interesting movie when you think about like the challenges of marriage and family and parenthood and just the, the vagaries of getting older. And I'm so I'm so curious to know like what gloss they put on your 50s. Yeah, like what happens when their kids are older and, and out of the house and everything. You know, yeah. I, I, I we could spend like an hour and a half talking about these movies. Okay, then we won't. Uh, Taking Lives is out, but Before Sunset is in. That's two Jesse performances, likely to be three. 2005, Assault on Precinct 13. I appreciate it. I'm glad that his name is Jake Roenick. It's, it's a cool, it's like another like just cool cop name that he has every couple of years. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13, the remake of the John Carpenter classic is not a good movie. Completely unnecessary. You know, the original holds up and they didn't need to make this really. So I'm not totally sure why they did. He's good in it. He's good in all of this, these kinds of movies and he starts to make a lot of them now in the next decade or so. This is like the post training day run of making like these genre movies. Correct. Uh, 2005, also Lord of War. A movie that you and I were trading notes on that is like solid. Yeah, it's Nick Cage's movie though. It is. Uh, and I don't think it needs to go in. This is a reunion with Andrew Nichol. Um, 2006, The Hottest State. Wrote, directed, and briefly co-stars in this film. Um, I would not put it in the in the uh, Hall of Fame. I wouldn't either. I know it's very personal to him. Not his best work necessarily. You know, a movie I've completely forgotten about is Fast Food Nation. Yet another Richard Linklater collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, this is definitely not going in. I will say, what a bold and interesting piece of art by Richard Linklater. Yeah, it's awesome. This is a a nonfiction book by Eric Schlosser that definitely swept the nation about kind of like what we've been doing to our bodies and how this food is produced. And it's a big kind of sweeping narrative about health. And somehow Linklater shaped it into a narrative story with mm-hmm. a lot of seasoned actors and some unseasoned actors, amazing cast. Paul Dano's in this movie, one of his first part, big parts, Bobby Cannavale, Wilmer Valderrama, Patricia Arquette, Louis Guzman, Hawk, Greg Kinnear. It's like, I don't know if failure is too harsh a word 
for a swing like this, but Linklater's the man. He just is always trying something different. Yeah, man. Uh, okay, so that's out. 2007 before the devil knows you're dead. I think in. So I rewatched this this weekend as well. Um, Sidney Lumet, one of his last films, a very hard-edged thriller about two mm-hmm. brothers who collaborate to rob their parents' jewelry store with tragic ends. Yeah. Very Shakespearean in its construct. Like, unbelievable, like, throat-clenching Philip Seymour Hoffman performance He's in this movie. Unbe- he is fucking on fire in this movie. So locked in and so damaged and so tortured in this and movie. And to some extent, I have to say, and I'm sure Ethan Hawke was, like, aware of this, he's getting fucking taken to the hole in the scenes he does with <laughs> Now, that's the dynamic between these two brothers, too. It's, it's, it's the right way to play it, though. Yeah, the, that's why he, I like it, is because he's know. just like, I'm going to let this genius smoke me here on screen. <laughs> yes, and but that those are the characters. Yeah. The characters are the domineering, overconfident, but also deeply insecure older brother who's not as beautiful and not as easily charming, and Ethan Hawke, who is this very handsome, but also very dim younger brother. And mm-hmm. they have that great, they have incredible interplay in this movie. The one thing that didn't work for me when I rewatched it this weekend is the time shifting narrative rollout is pretty messy and doesn't feel as coherent as I remember. It does, the movie does have great reveals, but it feels a little Christopher Nolan ish, actually, in terms yeah. of the way that it like shifts time and we go back three days to four days to the day of the event. D. Is this one of Ethan Hawke's best performances? I just like the idea that this guy who has been basically making quasi-leading man performances, even in Training Day, he's like the moral center of that movie. Mm-hmm. And then he does like a pretty like... Like he, like he submits himself to what this movie is. And I like that even... I like when movie stars are like, whatever the director needs here, I'll give them without vanity. Okay, let's put it in. Okay. I'm not sure if it's going to survive. I think it will. 2008, What Doesn't Kill You. That's not going in. No. Chelsea Two, on the Rocks is che- a documentary. 2008, 2008, Chelsea on the Rocks documentary, not going in. New York, I Love You. He wrote one of the segments in that omnibus film. That's not going in. 2009, movie that you're fond of. I love his performance in Brooklyn's Finest. He plays Detective Sal Presida. Um... Is this movie good? It's not good, but he's really good in it. And honestly, that they were just like, what if we just did Trading Day in New York? I would, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's another Antoine Fuqua film. Gear is in this. It's like yeah. a triptych story where it's Gear, Wesley Snipes, and, uh, and Hawk. And Hawk plays this strung out narc who is on the other side of the law. And it's it's pretty cool it's like what if what if jake was uh alonzo basically um i'm gonna I'm give not, you a yellow i'm gonna give okay. you a yellow give me a yellow you. we have a lot of a couple pretty big ones coming up we do all right so yellow staten island and daybreakers this year neither of which two genre movies neither of which are really going in right right but this i think daybreakers is his sort of entree into the horror movies that he would then make a staple of the last 10 years of his career and also notably, Staten Island is the first film directed by James DeMonico, who becomes someone that he works ah. with a couple of times here as well. So that's where he makes that partnership, which we'll yeah. discuss very shortly. Uh, 2011, 
The Woman in the Fifth. You seen this film? I can't say that I have. Uh, so, fun fact, this is written and directed by Paweł Pawlikowski, the what? great Polish filmmaker <laughs> who a couple of years later went on to make Ida and Cold War and is what? now one of the most celebrated international filmmakers in the world. Who was there first? Ethan Hawke. Incredible taste. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, it's Ethan Hawke and Kristen Scott Thomas in this movie, which I did see, I think, when it was released and is um, it's interesting. Um, okay. Not not the kind of triumph that Ida and Cold War are. Those are like two of the best movies of the last 15 years. But, um, you know, guy's got great taste. He always discovers new filmmakers. That's the other thing. He, he'll work with international filmmakers. He'll work with American filmmakers. Like you said, he'll work with first timers. He'll work with his friends. 2012, Sinister. We're kind of back where we started here with Scott Derrickson. And this is really the sign of the polarity of Hawk's mm-hmm. career for the next 10 years. The genre stuff mixed with the high art personal project work. This is a really solid American horror movie. Pretty scary movie. Is it in the top tier of the last decade, in your opinion? Um, in a lot of ways, I think this is the best execution of a classic Stephen King story that is not actually a Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. But this idea of a writer with demons, of a writer chasing this kind of uh, creative uh, inspiration through his head and what he's sort of is like confronted with. I think it's I think it's pretty awesome. I don't know if I would go top tier, but you and I may need at some point soon to build a last 10 years of horror hall of fame or a, a, like a horror canon post 2010. Sounds uh, like a Halloween project for us. And I think that would be I think Sinister would definitely be in the pool of movies we were choosing from. I think so too. You know, it's very famously a, a hit a successful movie, which I think right. is part of the reason why he became this avatar for Blumhouse over the next few years. Because and I they think could that build he these movies reads around Blumhouse him. the way we read it, where it's like, this is not unlike the way I got my start in independent cinema working with guys like Richard Linklater. These people make movies at a very small budget with a lot of creative freedom with an eye towards getting it to a lot of people if possible. And obviously the financial benefits are there too. And I think that it being part of movies like Sinister and now black phone fund the Paul Newman documentary and the the novel and you know his his the uh, theater company for sure like doing documentaries about blaze you know like yeah. it's definitely like I think he like knows how to pay his bills so I think we have to make a choice between Sinister and The Purge and The Purge is the following year another Blumhouse production mm-hmm. in terms of what goes in because they represent the thing you just described which is like very at a minimum solid horror thrillers that pay the bills and also create more good art in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I are just Blumhouse fans in general. So of those two, which do you prefer? I think I prefer the first Purge. Over Sinister. Yeah, the first Purge movie. The first Purge movie, I was like, this is, this is awesome. It's an extraordinarily good premise. Yeah, I don't I know. know if, I don't know if it's a better movie than Sinister, though. That's the challenge. It's tough. Are we split on this? Uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you sinister here. It's, it's, it's not, honestly, it's not like you're, you're, we're splitting hairs for me. What do you think the people would say if we put purge? What do you, what do you you think your cohort would say? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I think that, I think the purge has kind of, uh, lessened its impact over the years with the, the amount of movies it's made. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I yeah, don't think yeah, that the yeah. I think the first purge was like, did you see what the purge is about? And then when you go see it, it's like not as horrifying maybe as the the subsequent movies, but it is pretty cool. Yeah, it was so well marketed though. It was like oh, a masterstroke of marketing. They got me so excited for that movie. Okay, I'm gonna put Sinister in, and I'm gonna leave the purge yellow for now. But I think you can make the case that they're interchangeable. Uh, Before Midnight is also 2013, and I think it's going in. Okay. We're getting a little close to the line here, but that's okay. Uh, 2014 Boyhood, Academy Award nominated for his performance here. Very, uh, a small performance, you know, uh, like a small role. Would you put this in? (sighs) I mean, I got a big COD energy here in this movie, and Ethan Hawke talks about how the psychic weight of divorce has defined his life. Yeah. And first as a child of divorce and then as a divorced parent. And it's it's certainly a cliche for me to talk about this on a podcast, but it's a really effective rendering of like my dad's trying to be cool while taking me out for the weekend. The Astros. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate, man. I can really relate to that. And I think he, that same stripe of vulnerability that you're talking about, where like, he's really trying to seem cool to his kid but he's really a mess. But then when we see him later in life and he's kind of got his life together, you know, towards that reunion when he like, I think he's a club owner at the end of the film and he really seems to kind of have control over what he was searching for. I know there's a real maturity in this performance. I really like it. Like I would make the case that it's among his best work. Okay, let's put it in. What are we at now? Let's count it up. Uh, Okay, so if we include Boyhood, we got one, two, three, four... Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh oh. Okay. Is is ten including alive? That's not including alive. Okay. And we have eight more years of films to walk through, and also we have not even discussed uh, one of the greatest films he's ever made. So this is challenging. Okay. Uh, I think we have some some years that we can blow through here, though. Let's move quickly. Twenty fourteen. He also makes Predestination, very solid thriller. Yeah. With a sci-fi movie. This is movie. the one with Sarah Snook, right? It, it is. Um, and she's quite good in this. Cymbeline also this year. Good Kill also this year. And he directs a documentary called Seymour and Introduction. We have reached the phase in which Ethan Hawke is tremendously um, productive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think any of those films are going in. They're all kind of interesting, I guess. Good Kill, another Andrew Nichol movie. Uh, 2015, 10,000 Saints, Maggie's Plan, Born to be Blue, and Regression are all released this year. Born to be Blue is a really good performance as Chet Baker. I don't think the movie lives up to the performance. Was that kind of conceived as like an awards bait movie, you think? <sighs> um, I think not, he... Not to be like sort of no, dismissive. I don't think so because I think he is a little bit beyond that as like a mm-hmm. strategist. I think he's a passion project person and I don't think any... I think that telling Chet Baker's story, you know, this famously strung out but brilliant uh, jazz musician was meaningful to him and and... It, it didn't totally cohere, though I know it's a really important one. He talks about it all the time. 2016, another four movies. He makes In a Valley of Violence with Ty West, really nasty Western. He makes The Phenom. He makes Maudie, kind of dramedy. And he makes The Magnificent Seven remake with Antoine Fuqua. Which Are I any- enjoyed, but is not going in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think I had a harder time with it than you did. His character's name is unbelievable. Good Night Show. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. he's a he's a Confederate soldier who doesn't want to fight anymore. Yeah, just a brilliant, like just a great role in general for him. That's your boy Nick Pizzolatto on the on the script. Your boy. How yeah. is Nick? He's he's down bad. Really? I say that you know I don't know what's next for him, but when your signature franchise is just like you're just not doing it anymore, 
and other people are, it's tough. It's a very tough beat. 2017, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. This is a Luc Besson sci-fi fantasy Say epic. his character's name, Sean. His I'll name lie. is Jolly the Pimp, which is um, how I'll be introducing you on future pods. <laughs> not going in. Really wild, very strange film. 24 Hours to Live, also 2017. That's not going in. That's a thriller. 2018, Juliet Naked. Very pleasant movie. Really good movie. Yeah. He plays Tucker Crow, a kind of... Um, how would you describe him? Like a Jandek Jeff Buckley fusion? Kind of, I thought more like Evan Dando kind okay. of guy, but like, but also like a little bit more mi- mysterious. Like vanishes, makes one album vanishes, is the object of obsession for who's the other guy in this movie? Uh, I want to say it's Paul Schneider. Is it Paul Schneider? No, it's Chris O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd and Rose Byrne is like his wife, and then Rose Byrne falls in love with. With Ethan Hawke's character. Chris O'Dowd, sadly, is playing me in this film, a guy yeah. who is obsessed with all of his stuff and hanging out in his basement. This and, would be uh, like if um, Harry Nilsson came back to life and romanced your wife. <laughs> it's, uh, it's terrifying just to imagine that. It probably would work on Eileen, too. Uh, 2018 also features Blaze, which is the movie that I talked to Hawk uh, about. This is a movie he wrote, directed, and produced. Major passion project for him and his wife. Um, about Blaze Foley, the great country singer. I really like this movie a lot. It's um, Hawk has a small role in it, and so I'm not totally sure as an actor it belongs in his Hall of Fame, but it is as close as I think he'll ever get to making a 70s movie. Mm-hmm. Kind of shambolic, beautiful character study mm-hmm. about an imperfect person. Um I like that this is the sort of stuff that he spends his money on when he makes yeah. money making 24 hours to live. Um, so I dig that movie. I don't, I don't think it's in, though. What do you think? I, I don't think it's in either, no. Another thriller, Stockholm. That's not going in. Also in 2018, First Reformed, in which he, uh, he plays Reverend Ernst Toller. So let's uh, put that in. So that's the movie that defines me as a man. Um, and when you hear me at the end of a movie draft, picture me wrapped in barbed wire. Getting ready to decide because my fate. you've you've lost another where I get sixty percent of the vote. Or um, do you want do you want to have that conversation right now as I discuss? No, we definitely first need Amanda to be here. <laughs> we can discuss that the next time we are reunited. Uh, Twenty nineteen kid quality flick. Mm-hmm. Also adopt a highway. Which didn't you see at a film festival? I did. It was at South by Southwest. This was directed by Logan Marshall Green. It was. Uh, it is about an ex-con getting out of prison and trying to uh, adapt back to reality. And um, I, I would say that you were talking about like making movies that are like, this is like his version of Straight Time. Um, it's somewhat a, a, a flawed movie, but it's actually like a lovely performance by him. But we're, we're way too full in the hall right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm not taking uh, a, and I'm not taking a live out of, off the waiting list for Adopt a Highway. Okay, that's fair. Uh, also, 2019, The Truth, speaking of his work with international filmmakers, this is the follow-up to Shoplifters from Hirokazu Koreeda, mm-hmm. uh, in which he stars opposite Juliette Binoche and Catherine Deneuve. Nice work if you can get it for Ethan Hawke. This is actually a very unsuccessful movie, but I like that everyone here tried it. Um, Koreeda has another film coming out this year called Broker that I'm really excited about that apparently is a return to form. 2020, he plays Nikola Tesla in a movie called Tesla. You it's a pass for me. Yeah, I just think there's only one Tesla, you know? 
Elon That's Musk. The one you drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 2020 Cutthroat City. This is one of his funniest performances ever. Can we just acknowledge that this movie got made? It's a bank heist during Katrina movie directed by RZA. Sick. And it's Ethan Hawke, T.I. Who else is in this? Isa Gonzalez. Yeah, I mean, I, Shamik Moore and Demetrius Ship are really like the stars of the movie. Yeah. Um, but Ethan Hawke plays a crooked cop and he is electrifying. Is yeah. he our best crooked cop? Is an honest question I have for you. He's and when are we doing the zone. crooked cop episode? When is that episode happening? Crooked cops? I thought we were going to do crooked cop summer next summer on rewatchables. Is that something that's been discussed? Because <laughs> we, we keep trying to do internal affairs and then we feel like we need a bigger umbrella. You know, we can't just mm. drop that in there. Sad. All right. Well, ask Bill. <laughs> Let me know what he says. Uh, 2021 zeros and ones. I watched this film recently. Abel Ferrara directed it. It is a very chaotic, oddly constructed, really interesting kind of COVID production. Um, okay. Do you see this one yet? I did not. I think you can stream it for free now. I think it's along with Tubi. Midnight Clear. I think maybe that's a double feature for you. Um, yeah, it's on Tubi. Fucking Tubi, man. Tubi is the future, CR. All the movies are on Tubi now. All the good shit. Uh, that's not going in the Hall of Fame. If you did a, if you did a, the twenty best movies on Tubi right now pod, you think you would put numbers up? I think you would. I think because first of all, when you put Sean Fantasy on a podcast, you put numbers up. But after that, fucking accelerator <laughs> is if you just do servicey Tubi pods. That's um, you're describing my my Patreon future in 2025. Unfortunately <laughs> for me, <laughs> five episodes a week. Every episode is the 20 best What's movies on a different streaming service. <laughs> That's actually really, it's chilling how accurate that may be. Um, 2022. Don't worry. In 2025, there's only going to be three streaming services. <laughs> it's true. They're all going to be owned by Tubi, which is absolutely yeah. kicking everyone's ass these days. This year, we got The Northman, in which Hawk played King Ornvadil. Yeah. Um, I will avenge you, father. He's awesome in this movie but he's only in it for 10 minutes yeah and uh, it kind of bummed me out because you know I mean obviously you know what happens to him if you see the trailer but it's like short lived let's put it that way it is you know he talked about wanting to be in this movie because he wanted to be in a big epic his quote in the New York article about Eckers is just this is why he, I love him is he's just like I wanted to see what it was like to make Apocalypse Now <laughs> so brilliant uh, and then the black phone yeah um, which I would say is not going into the Hall of Fame nor I wouldn't either, but I did want to ask you something about the grabber. Okay. Did growing up, did you guys have like a like an urban legend childhood boogeyman myth out on on Long Island? <sighs> yes. Um, it, it's interesting that you say that because in 1992, when I was 10 years old, um, Katie Beers was kidnapped um, okay. at a place called Spaceplex, which was an indoor amusement park. And this, the story of Katie Beers's abduction, you know, which is all extremely tragic, though she was found alive, um, was as big as the moon landing on Long mm -hmm. Island. This was on the cover of Newsday every day for what felt like a year straight. And anybody who's listening to this who grew up in the tri-state area, I'm sure you know the name Katie Beers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's resonant. I mean, this is a real, like, the don't talk to strangers aspect of parenting. Yeah, stranger danger. Yeah. Yes. All of that stuff is totally Although, oriented by that. The thing is, is that we had stranger danger, but we also like did have, did have any parental supervision. 
So it was like stranger danger was like the only governing principle of it. It wasn't like, and I'll actually go with you to practice. It's such a, it's such a paradox. Like I think about this all the time, right? Because as I said, my parents weren't together. So like it was, there was a lot of like, all right, baseball practice is over. You're going to walk home. I walked home all the time from everything. And like cut through the park. Oh, all, all, oh my Whatever, God. All, yeah. all of the shortcuts through like wooded areas. That's terrifying to think about now. And also I lived like a mile away from a, a shopping mall. And I would just go like at the age of nine or 10 years old, I would just go to the mall by myself and just right. wander around B Dalton and Tower Records looking at stuff I couldn't afford. And that's part of the reason why I, I am who I am today. Just buying shit that I don't need. But you're right. Like it's pretty, the grabber is, that's resonant. Yeah. You know, that's, that's scary stuff. Um, there's some it, grabbers in Philly, Philly lore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to speak on it? I well, I, I would just say if you if you're curious, Google Uncle Eddie. <laughs> That's extremely ominous. Uh, all right. So here's the problem. We've got two yellows and eleven greens. Our two yellows are Brooklyn's finest and Alive. Neither of which are going to make it in. But I'm going to read to you the greens. Okay. Okay. Dead Poet Society. Reality bites. Before Sunrise, Gattaca, Training Day, Before Sunset, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Sinister, Before Midnight, Boyhood, and First Reformed. So I, I can help us with the cuts here, but I almost wonder whether we, bec- we come with a, a Hall of Fame that is not representative of the breadth of his career. So I would say we could get rid of the Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Mm-hmm. While, while a very good performance, I don't know necessarily that it's going to be shown in his like memorial montage i agree with you i think that's probably the one that is the easiest to cut here um because it's very very good but it is ultimately hoffman's movie Mm -hmm. and while it's important for him i don't think it's critically important so i think that that probably gets it done for us how do you feel about that yeah that's how i that's what i think that was easy cr we did it man we know how to compromise Sometimes I conclude a Hall of Fame because I really need to go to the bathroom. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> what if I was like, I'm going to keep you here for an hour to talk about the Uncle Eddie that- and the, the joys of Brooklyn's finest? <laughs> I don't know why I'm so damaged, though. Like, I could just be like, can we just take a break for like one it's minute? But no, it's not how We've I do been, it. We were trained by Bill Simmons, who will somehow <laughs> rush through 45 minutes of our rewatchables and just be like, man, I've had to pee for like an hour. <laughs> So true. Um, this is a good Hall of Fame. He's had a great career. Yeah. Very, very proud of Ethan Hawke. Very proud to have uh, observed his greatness over the years. CR, thanks for doing this. You I know, can't wait for the water pods that we do later this year. Oh, my God. We got water pods. We got train pods. We're going to do all kinds of vessels and land masses. You know, when are we going to do the Asia pod, the Europe pod? I'm not talking about like films made in Europe. No, I'm just, talking about stories yeah. set in Europe. Yeah. Uh, when when does Tubi start its Europe vertical? Tubi needs to cut the check. That's all I'm saying. I'm really <laughs> doing a lot of free. work on their behalf. They Tubi's need to cut. Free. No, it's ad supported. Yeah, but there's, like it's free to us. There's money in those streaming hills, Chris. I'm there's sending money people in those tubes. There's <laughs> they're streaming obscure Abel Ferrara 2021 films, and they're making hot cash off of them. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Big Picture today. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for his work on today's episode. Please stay tuned. Well, stay tuned to The Watch. That's a great pod that my buddy Chris makes. 
And uh, the answer is the answer done for the year. When is that coming back? Uh, I it, the answer is not done for the year, but I am not going to be on this coming week's podcast. Oh, sad. Maybe because you and I are going on a vacation together, but we're never going to talk about that in public. How about that for a tease? Later this week on the show, um, it's the best movies of the year so far. We've got ten different Ringer staffers sharing their favorite films. Chris is among those people. I so contributed. Please check that out if you want to hear about some more good movies. Thanks again. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.